Hey, 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 welcome to Unbox Your Gift, how to turn your passion into a profession. And if anyone can do that, my guest today is going to show you how. Because just when you think, well, no one's going to pay me for that, no one's going to you know, want anything to do with that passion that I have, whatever that passion may be. My guest today is the first woman to climb Mount Everest, yep, the world's highest mountain from both sides. She's an author. She has created a business adventure website which allows fellow adventurers to build their brands and find funding for their project. And her first climb forms the basis of the true story behind the movie Everest. She is, of course, Kathy O'Dowd. Welcome to Unbox Your Gift. Thank you so much, Rita. This is really exciting because you're an athlete and I know that how athletes think is completely different to how civilians... <laughs> So somewhere back there is a is a kid at school who was always the last girl to be picked for any sport and those you know, horrible team pick things. Yeah, going like, well, I'm not an athlete. I, and the funny thing is, yes, I guess in some senses I am, but I'd never have imagined ending up in this place. I was this awkward kid at school who was introverted and academic and hated all the little lady school sports we did at my you know, terribly conventional school. Wow. So you uh, don't consider yourself an athlete? No, I know I don't. Wow. And you've climbed Mount Everest. Well, that's just totally... <laughs> wow. Incredible. Incredible. So take me back. I mean, you've done it from both sides, which means that the north and the south. Is that what that means? Yes. Well... Well, let me try taking you right back because mm -hmm. people always assume that this is going to be about having a burning vision. You know, I'm going to be one of those terribly determined six-year-olds who declares that I'm going to climb Everest and, and now all the adults go, oh, that's sweet. <laughs> I wasn't any of those things. I, I wasn't any good at sport. I grew up in the suburbs of Johannesburg in South Africa, which is a big flat grass plain. Mm. The most ambitious things my parents did was go day walking on summer holidays you know that was it this is not how you expect to start out as a mountaineer and the other thing that i think i took away from childhood was two strong messages neither of which was helpful the one from my mother was a woman absolutely has to earn her own money mm -hmm. because she was trapped or she thought, thought of herself as trapped in a not entirely happy marriage, mm -hmm. but she certainly didn't have the financial resources to even sort of mentally think about what leaving would look like. Mm. And then uh, my father, desperately conventional businessman, so he just did this mysterious thing that earned money that involved a suit and, mm. you know, disappearing every morning to the office. Mm -hmm. No idea what he actually did. And so there I was thinking, well, the only way I've ever seen of earning money looks boring as hell. And yet clearly I have to have my own money because otherwise life is vulnerable. Yeah. You know, your, your options disappear on you. Yeah. I got to university and I took up rock climbing. I'd done one of those, you know, standard kids adventure camps things. I knew I liked hiking and, and it, it had a sort of freedom to it that conventional sport didn't. And then I found the rock climbing club and I wasn't particularly good at it, but I liked it. 
it was free, it was wild, it was this fun camaraderie, and no one had to lose. I think school sport really put me off people who have to lose so that you can win. Because I'm normally the one who's losing. (laughs) (laughs) Someone else is winning at my expense. (laughs) Wow. So you join these these outdoor sports are so personal. Mm. You know, it's not a competition. Mm. It's just about doing something a little different or a little harder or wilder than what you did last time. Yeah. So uh, there, not this, not Everest still isn't featuring in any of this. But what's featuring is a journey, a sense of exploration. And started mountaineering at twenty-one. And yeah, at this point, I was lucky. I mean, my father was paying for my university, so I wasn't having to contend with student debt. Yeah. But beyond that, I was washing windows on high-rise buildings. Wow. You know, that you use climbing ropes, particularly back then, to kind of abseil down the side of windows, yeah. uh, uh, which paid quite well. And I'd listen to my English set works on back then on, on cassette tapes on a Sony Walkman. Wow. <laughs> you know, while I was washing these windows. And that money would go towards climbing trips, Central Africa, South America, places that were affordable um, if you were traveling out of South Africa. But so I had this hobby that I loved. But how do you turn that into a living? Mm. I mean, back then, there were no commercial anything. Uh, no one had professional guiding qualifications. Mm. Um, and even then, I'm not convinced about that as, as the solution for turning your passion into a paying job. But even that wasn't available. It was just this ridiculous, expensive yeah. hobby that I'd acquire. Dangerous. Hello. Can we add that in there? Yeah, no, no, no. Let's back oh, off on danger. Not, not, not that you're wrong. Okay. But I think one of my defining moments was when I was eight. Mm-hmm. I was a kid who was born really late. My mother thought it was the menopause, and it turned out to be an unexpected <laughs> little present. <laughs> so my, my brother... <laughs> My brothers were much older than me. Okay. I was eight when my 21-year-old brother was killed in a car crash. Oh. Yeah. Wet road, distracted driver. They were looking at a sunset. Mm. If he'd been wearing a seatbelt, he would have lived, but you didn't have to back then. Oh. So utterly pointless death. Oh. And, you know, I guess for some people, you could, might be left feeling that you have to be it's terribly safe about life, but I think I got left feeling you have to seize life. Wow. Because, you know, you can wrap yourself in bubble wrap and sit on the sofa for the rest of your life. And that does not guarantee you'll live to 90. And it probably does guarantee you'll have a really boring life. Yeah. So it's not about taking needless risk. It's about learning how to manage risk and then, you know, still having the courage to get yourself into these really interesting places. So how did Everest uh, come about all of this? Like, what, what's going on? Exactly. So I'm in this space where I climb. Climbing is this expensive hobby, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't know what else to do with it. I need a real job, but I really don't want a corporate job. Yeah. So I'm doing that thing where you hang at university doing higher degrees yeah, uh, as a way of not getting a real job. Yep, yep. I'm working on my master's degree in journalism because I don't actually want to be a journalist, but it was the most practical thing I could think of given my skill set. Mm-hmm. I liked 
storytelling. So, you know, studying, writing and photography was fun, but the thought of actually getting a proper job for the man wasn't fun. So I'm, you know, dwarling at university doing this master's. And I see a story in the newspaper about the first South African Everest expedition. It's like, okay, I'm a climber. That's interesting. And the team are all men because of course they are. It's a very male dominated activity. Mm. Then they're running a competition to find a woman to join the team. And it's super sexist. I mean, it's presented as if the girl is going to be, you know, dressed in a bikini and popped on the top like a flag by the men, you know. It was just, it was a straight, you know, get more eyeballs on the sponsoring newspaper, you know, type of affair. But they were going to have a short list of six who'd go and climb Kilimanjaro as a kind of a, a test expedition. It's the highest mountain in Africa. Mm-hmm. And I figured I had a fair shot of making the shortlist. I mean, there just weren't that many contenders. So possibly a free trip to Kilimanjaro and just possibly a free trip to the Himalaya. I didn't care that it was Everest. Wow. I wanted to climb in the Himalaya and I couldn't work out how to pay for it or even how to find a team to join. Yeah. On the other hand, I was mid-20s, you know, university and like, all my girlfriends are like, hell no, this is sexist as hell. Mm. You know, mm. this is just such a toxic offer. And they, they were right. Mm. It was a thoroughly toxic offer. Mm. And yet, some woman was going to win. And if I didn't apply, I'd spend the rest of my life thinking that could have been me. Wow. So, yes, like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm applying for this thing. Toxic or not, I'm applying for this thing. Uh, which I did. And I was right in both senses. I was right in that I won. I got my trip to Kilimanjaro and then I got onto the Everest team. And I was right in that it was thoroughly toxic. It was a a horrible way to join a team. And the team itself was pretty dysfunctional. So we had a team that was fighting before we even left South Africa. Oh, and and not ju- it wasn't just sexist, although there was that too. The men weren't particularly keen on me, given that I had, I'd had all this media coverage, even though I was the last minute addition to the team. Wow. Uh, but the men didn't like each other either. Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> so before we got anywhere close to Everest, this team is disintegrating into some massive infighting within the group. What are they fighting about? That's a good question in retrospect. The team leader who came to us from an army background was, was much too controlling of a group of, of, and some of the climbers, everyone was picked for their CV, not for whether they were team players or whether they got on with each other. Ah. They were just picked as the biggest names in South African climbing. But South African climbing is like a old fishbowl. Mm. We're not exactly world setters in the climbing space. We're rugby players. We're surfers, you know. Mm. So the South Africa's biggest names didn't mean they were much good at this thing. It just meant they had huge egos mm. that they brought on the team. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, I wrote, and, you know, the first quarter of my book is basically about what were we fighting about. Wow. That's super toxic. Big, big power play largely within the men in the team. Uh, The team, we had three people walk out before we got to base camp. 
we haven't even got to the bottom of the mountain and the team is falling apart. And to add to this, we have a journalist sent by this newspaper who's having a whale of a time writing about all of this negativity because, of course, nothing sells like bad news. Mm. And there are about 11 other teams on Everest and the news of this has spread along the trail. So we arrive at base camp with this reputation oh. as this bunch of amateurs from Africa who can't even hold their team together to arrive at the bottom of the mountain, let alone, you know, climb to the top of the mountain. Mm. So all of this is horrible. I'd never been on a climbing team like this. And, and then we've still got to climb Everest. <laughs> Challenge hasn't even come yet. <laughs> but uh, and the thing is, there's, there's a point to this. There's actually something interesting that comes out of an experience this difficult. So very briefly, onto the mountain, all the way up to the top camp, one of four teams who then are in a position to make a bid for the summit. The other three, well, two of them are famous teams led by big name uh, international guides. One is the New Zealand guide, Rob Hall, and the other is an American guide, Scott Fisher both very well-known, very good. Uh, Rob Hall has climbed Everest five times. I mean, the man knows what he's doing. Wow. The weather is less stable than we hoped. We are being super careful. The team has calmed down. We've lost the most toxic elements, but we still know we're not super experienced. So we're being very careful, very conservative. We decide the weather's not perfect. So we're going to wait a day. So we're at the top camp, 8,000 meters waiting these other three teams go, which is horrible. Yeah. You know, we're lying in our sleeping bag thinking Rob Hall is going for the summit. You know, if there was ever a man where you should just, you know, follow him. Yes. <laughs> Slipstream yeah. in his footsteps. And then the next day they're on the radios, they're on the summit of Everest, they've done it. And we're lying in bed at the top <laughs> camp thinking, oh God, we've got this wrong. This is such a disaster. And then on the way down, the weather changed badly and a huge storm hit. And 21 climbers from these three teams are now missing in the storm. And this is what the movie is about. Uh, despite your kind introduction, the movie isn't about me. I'm not nearly that famous. The movie is about Rob Hall and Scott Fisher and these teams caught in the storm. Oh. And we're the team back at the top camp, oh. just, you know, literally fully dressed for fear that our tents will tear in the storm. Okay. Uh, we're listening to the radio calls as it becomes increasingly clear these climbers are missing, but like life-threateningly missing mm. in the storm. Mm. And, you know, long story short, by the time we're done, five people are dead from these other teams, including both the team leaders. Both Rob Hall and Scott Fisher died in this storm. So everyone pulls back down to base camp after this, this ends. Some people are very badly injured. But the, the interesting side effect from this, this is the first time that Everest ever went viral in the modern media space. This was the first year that expeditions had websites at base camp. Wow. And we still didn't have um, sort of instant social media or anything like that yet. But this storm kind of went viral in world media. Mm. 
so that the first helicopters to arrive at base camp weren't rescue helicopters. They were Japanese um, film crews oh reporting on the storm, um, which made the climbers absolutely mad. Yeah. But it was the first time anyone had ever been part of a sort of a literally uh, a viral as it happens media moment mm. on a big mountain. Mm -hmm. And the whole space was going to change. We didn't realize it at the time. This was the beginning of, of, of our new media world. So suddenly we're part of something that isn't just news in South Africa because of all our team fighting. Mm. It's news right around the world. Mm. And we decide to try again after the storm. Are you kidding me? So you're, you're already there, you're going to do it again? <laughs> well, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Well, you know, this, this expedition cost over $300,000 raised in corporate sponsorship. Are you scared at all? Are you... Something inside you being, you had the two leaders who are so good, they've died, and you're going to go back again? But that, that actually involves taking a step back about risk. Because, like, from your point of view, it's like, okay, climbing a mountain sounds possibly sensible, but people have just died. Clearly, it stopped being sensible. Yeah. It's not like that. People die on mountains. It doesn't have to be Everest. People die on, in South Africa, Table Mountain above Cape Town. They get caught in the mist in shorts and T-shirts and die of exposure overnight. The wilderness is dangerous, but it's also manageable. That's why we, in my opinion, that's why we do these risk sports. It's about managing, understanding and managing risk. So if you're on Everest, and you've only just realized you might die, you shouldn't be here. You are super ill-prepared, inexperienced, utterly naive. Mm -hmm. um, so you should have realized long since in your climbing career, this is a risk sport. You need to understand that risk and work out how you're going to manage it. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways we manage risk, one of the ways we deal with risk emotionally we tend to assume that other people got into trouble because they made mistakes and we're not going to make those mistakes. Yeah. And that is a rationalization. And, I, and we do understand that there is sheer, utter bad luck in mountains. There are things happen that you cannot predict and you could not stop. And yes, we've got our fingers crossed and we're hoping that we, we don't get caught by bad luck. Mm. But the majority of mistakes, climbers made mistakes that made them vulnerable if the bad luck hits. So choosing to climb in unstable weather was a choice that we didn't make. Those other teams did make. Mm -hmm. They didn't expect the storm, but they did know the weather wasn't as good as it might have been. And then they made a, a set of other mistakes that meant they were still out there when the storm hit. Um, you know, not that we, we, we were immune from making mistakes, but it did mean that in that moment, we could look at what happened and go like, you know, we actually did okay. Mm -hmm. We were very conservative, which felt like it might've been too conservative, but in retrospect, yeah, conservative, good strategy. Yeah. We didn't panic in the storm. We didn't do anything stupid. We got ourselves back down all the way back to base camp perfectly safely. So if we can do that with a storm, if we got good weather, we only have to do another 850 vertical meters. 
we can, we can do that. We came out of the storm feeling more confident if we get the good weather break. Uh, it was helped by the Sherpas on our team being very convinced that good weather was going to come behind the storm. Mm -hmm. And then as we climbed back up the mountain, another stunning motivator, which was a phone call. Uh, from South Africa, President Nelson Mandela. Oh, you're kidding me. Oh. Yeah, seriously. He yeah. phones us and goes, guys, I am proud of you for trying again. I believe you can do this. <gasps> and this is a public call. It goes out on radio while he's making it. It's a very public statement of support for the team. <laughs> Sugar. He's amazing. Oh, and now you got some pressure. Forget the wind. <laughs> you got pressure now. Well, what, what we do have now essentially is we are now a daily soap opera back in South Africa yes. after all of this. Yeah. Uh, so back up the mountain, careful, determined, with the very last team of the season, we get to the top huge success you know six of the, the team of eight get to the top i'm the first south african to the top uh male or female wow. so suddenly it's like the token woman yeah. last minute mm -hmm. is standing on the summit <laughs> against all of and then it doesn't end well because on the descent one of our six gets killed so within 12 hours, triumph turns to tragedy and it's emotionally, it's, it's an awful, awful experience because you've got something you worked for so hard, you're so proud of, and then it's, it just turns in the space of 12 hours. And of course, it led to another huge wave of media debate in South Africa. What happened? Why? Who's to blame? What should have been done? Mm. You know, were we brave? Were we selfish? Was mm. this, you know? Yeah. Uh, and to be, have a tragedy that personal, you've lost someone, a friend, someone you've worked together with so closely on this huge project. And then to have every decision you've made poured over by strangers in media, second guessed everything you did, just awful, an awful ending to an extraordinary experience. But in all that awful was astonishing opportunity because we came back to South Africa utterly notorious. All sorts of strangers who cared nothing about mountain climbing had an opinion about this, you know, essentially reality show of drama that had gone on on Everest. Jeez. And it meant that even before I landed in South Africa, there were speaker bureaus phoning my parents saying, we've got corporate clients who want to, you know, have a speech about this. Can your daughter give a speech? <laughs> and, you know, I'd been lecturing at university. <laughs> you know. I just want to go back home safely. <laughs> <laughs> well, my father was a corporate executive, so he knew that this was a thing yeah. um, that happened. And they knew that I'd, you know, I'd been working as a junior lecturer at university while I finished my media, my, my master's. They knew I could, give, you know, I could talk. Yeah. Um, so they were like, um, yeah, we think she probably can. <laughs> we'll we'll you know, tell her to get in touch when she, when oh. no plane lands. 
Wow. Uh, so that was actually the big break. There was a publisher contract to write a book. Uh, that was less successful. Not that it isn't great to get a publishing contract. We all know how hard it is to get a publisher interested in a book proposal. But they wanted the book so fast that I think I wrote a terrible book. I'm very glad it's out of print. Okay. I didn't have the time to kind of process the experience and understand what it actually yeah. meant in mm. terms of the bigger picture. So I, I wrote a book that I don't like and I'm very glad it, it, it doesn't exist anymore. It's out of print. But the bigger opportunity turned out to be the speaking. Uh, because the, the corporate clients, initially, it's like the gossip. Mm -hmm. They're simply paying to hear the gossip about the expedition. Mm -hmm. And they're paying to be in the same room. It's the same way Olympic athletes get those 15 minutes of fame. Yeah. And it actually doesn't matter whether you can give a decent speech. <laughs> um, they, just, they just want to be in the same room as you. These days, they want to take a selfie with you. Back then, we weren't doing selfies yet. Mm -hmm. But same idea. Mm -hmm. And if it turns out you can't actually give a decent speech, and there's no reason why an athlete should be able to give a decent speech. If you can't give a speech, after about four months, the bookings will die because your moment of fame is over mm -hmm. and they'll move on to someone else. Yeah. If you're super famous, uh, like Neil Armstrong, apparently couldn't actually give a terribly good speech, but who cares? First man on the moon. Okay. For the rest of his life, people just wanted to be in the same room as Neil Armstrong. Yeah. So he gave speeches for, you know, ever after. Yeah. Um, but... If you're good at it and you can approach it as a business, that was my break because they pay good money for corporate speeches. And I was able to turn that Everest experience into bluntly a product. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the break actually wasn't that I got to the top of Everest. That wouldn't have been enough. It would have been a personal achievement story. Mm -hmm. and the, the shine would have gone off. That would have, you know, other, other women, other people would have done more recent personal achievements and uh, the booking would have gone on to them. Yeah. It was all that team infighting. Oh. Uh, and it was overcoming all those obstacles from the, from the team obstacles, obstacles we created ourselves to the external obstacles like the big storm. Mm. And I took that and turned it into a speech about team dynamics and about taking ambitious, egotistical, competitive individuals and trying to turn them into a collaborative team. Wow. Because I had some serious first-hand experience with wow. living that. Wow. That's and so that's smart. the product. That's smart. So, Kathy, that's, that's, that's really smart. What I want to know is, for someone who's learning or wanting to break into the public speaking or professional speaking scene, did you write your own talks, keynotes, presentations? Did you have help? How did it go about creating that? Well, I largely wrote my own and I largely didn't have any help, but um, there, there were three important elements that went into it. One, four, okay. I was already a speaker, as in I was a university lecturer. Mm -hmm. So that is a skill set. Mm -hmm. And it, if you don't have a chance to practice on 
about you know, 200 18-year-olds who've got no choice but to be in your lecture hall, you do need to practice speaking. It's a skill. Mm-hmm. So if you aren't you know, working in a speaking business at the moment, something like Toastmasters, mm-hmm. anything that, you know, no matter what else you do, whether you're a climber or a business person, speaking is a skill yeah. and it needs to be worked on. Mm. Um, so Toastmasters and in almost all countries now, there are speaking associations. Mm-hmm. I forget what the Australian one is called. Um, the National Speakers Association of Australia, I think. Yes. Um, that, that's another good place to go. Then there's the, what I did have was help with turning it into a product. I didn't quite realize it was help, but what happened, a friend of mine ran one of those teamwork training companies that takes executive out for, you know, day, day activities. Mm-hmm. And he took me out to lunch. He knew me. He knew the various people who'd walked out on the team, the big egos. Mm. And I spent four hours going on about, oh, I can't believe this happened to us. You know, why do adults act like this? And he just rolled his eyes and said, you aren't special. You're a cliche. And he introduced me to Ken Blanchard, who was a a guru, a guru of, you know, team development. And at the time, Ken Blanchard had his theory of, of team development, forming, storming, norming, performing. Right. And it was like, oh, right. We just took storming to a new high, literally, and, you know, <laughs> metaphorically. Yeah. And it was like, oh, okay, we aren't special. We are a cliche. And I used Ken Blanchard's theory as the structure to create a speech, partly because I was uncomfortable talking about me. I'm not actually a a me speaker. I'm not in super into being inspirational as an individual. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did want to keep the speaking going. I mean, I loved, I liked it. I liked giving speeches and God, they paid well. (laughs) I I wanted that money. (laughs) So uh, talking about the team, meant I didn't have to talk about me. Yes. Uh, so I used Ken Blanchard's idea as the structure of a speech. Okay. So th- that's the second element is what's the value to your audience? Mm-hmm. And one of the mistakes I see is people going, I have a burning message the world needs to hear. The world is busy. Mm. The world is busy. The world has its own affairs. It's not waiting for your burning message. Mm-hmm. And your burning message is probably less inspirational, original than you think it is. Yeah, yeah. So it's not enough to go, oh, I want to be a motivational speaker. The world needs to hear my message. <laughs> You've got to have a product the world will pay for <laughs> and the world will actually give 60 minutes of their time to listen to. Yeah. So uh, if you're working your way into the space, you may well need to work with a coach uh, to go like, let's get practical about your product. So, so, so what's going to sell in this space? I, and I totally agree with that, Kathy. What I find really interesting is you took an adventure and then you were able to monetize that on the back end of that. How, and since in some ways I feel like you reverse, usually people say, I want to speak, but I don't know what to speak about. You reverse engineered that. You had something, you had a, an experience, which you now developed into a product to speak on. How would someone need to, so maybe create something in their life, maybe do something that's of value 
so that they can create that into a product and speak about. Would, would you agree with something like that? Yes, you can do that. It's really hard. I mean, all of this is, is hard. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of climbers who've had adventures where nothing went wrong and the big result is nobody cared. Right. You know, yes, talking about your Everest climb is a little bit of a cliche in the motivational speaking space. But the truth is, at this point, thousands and thousands of people have climbed Everest. It is the season right now, today, this week, and something like 50 people a day have been standing on top of Everest in this last week. Every one of them is probably thinking, I'm going to go home and be famous and give a speech. And the speaker bureaus are going like, oh, no, please, not more Everest. No. We have more Everest speakers on our books than we know what to do with. <laughs> the height of and Everest. That's, <laughs> you know, yeah. Who cares at this point? Mm. And that's Everest. Go and climb some other mountain and people are like, honestly, who cares? And so, you know, even adventurers face the same problem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you've done your project, it needs to be a project that got media attention if you're going to break into the speaking space. Uh, because people get onto corporate stages one of two ways. The easiest is that corporate audiences have heard of them which means that they got national media attention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing an adventure project, you have to have got your PR and media sorted because you can't rely on the lightning stroke of having a toxic team and a killer storm and being on a, you're having your adventure go viral in world media. I mean, having someone like Nelson Mandela call you up and encourage exactly. you. Know, that's, all of that is just, you know, and I've never done an expedition again that got that kind of media attention. Wow. Lightning strikes once. It's mm -hmm. very hard to recreate that moment. You have to recognize the moment and exploit the hell out of it, basically. Yeah. You know, seize that opportunity and run with it. So one way in is media. Okay. Create a project that gets national media mm -hmm. and then work your speaking off the back of that. The other is to create a product that has real value. And this is where it's not enough to go, I want to be a motivational speaker. I have a message. The world is here. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you need to understand your space, create a product people will hear for. And then unfortunately, you're going to have to cold call hustle for mm -hmm. clients. And I've got friends who've done this mm -hmm. and they make good livings, but it's hard work. Mm. And they've got a cold call and I hate that. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot sell myself that way. I actually gave up on doing sponsored expeditions because I hated trying to raise the sponsorship. I managed a couple of times, but it was so exhausting and so demoralizing. Yeah. And I realized eventually the speaking I was good at and mm -hmm. I had this, it had its own momentum. Mm -hmm. Giving a speech turned out to be the best marketing for getting more speeches. Yeah. And I chose in the end to, to earn enough money speaking and spend that money doing further expeditions. Oh, nice. Uh, and that, so that's how I funded 20 years worth of, well, never having a real job. I never went back to having a job. Wow. After that's remarkable. So this is what I want to know. Now, you help people, Kathy, fund their own adventures. Like you teach them how, how, do, how can someone listening right now who wants an adventure, maybe not Everest, because we, you, you kind of talk them out of Everest. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, someone, else, someone else, how do you fund that? 
Well, what I actually set out to do, this is a fairly recent side project. Okay. Uh, so in 20 years, I did, I raised sponsorship for expeditions, which I've done, but I have to admit, I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. I wrote another book, which I've self-published and then got a second edition with a publisher of that book. Um, that I like that book, but honestly, the royalties buy me lunch about twice a year. Oh, you know, wow. oh, yeah. the royalties are not paying for anything mm-hmm. particularly. Mm-hmm. But the book is really useful as kind of a calling card, mm-hmm. it, you know, as a sort of a sign of professionalism, a sign mm-hmm. of having an, an, an interesting story to tell. Yeah. So the book was useful. Uh, something else that was useful was I went on to climb Everest a second time. I actually failed. So it was the third expedition before I got back to the top. And I wasn't actually chasing the record. I was just trying to get more experience. And I couldn't get sponsorship for a new mountain. I wanted one of the the very high ones. Still working out of South Africa. The only mountain anybody cared about then was Everest. Like really weird. I'd climbed Everest. And now sponsors wanted to pay for Everest. Like why? (laughs) It's Everest. Mm. So I went back to the other side. And when I got to the top, there was this moment. I was the first woman to have climbed it from both sides. And in the climbing sense, who cares? But in a the first woman in the world sense, Mm. that tagline Mm. has been an incredible gift Mm. uh, for the book, for the speaking, because being the first in the world never goes away. Mm. Like a speed record goes away. Yeah. Because somebody does it faster. Yeah. Uh, but a first in the world, you'll carry that for the rest of your career, no matter what else other people do. Mm. Uh, so that, <laughs> that turned out to be, um, I mean, I'd never walk into a climbing space and go like, oh, you know who I am. Because climbers are going to go like, eh, eh, who cares? <laughs> it's yeah. just not that important as a climbing yeah. um, achievement. Mm-hmm. But in the corporate space, it turned out to be really useful. So you need to think about your marketing. Who are you in the space? What's the one-liner that means when you introduce yourself, people go like, oh, that sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard of you, but it sounds like maybe I should have. Tell yeah. me more. Yeah. And then the tell me more is when I hopefully hook them on. I have some interesting things to share with you. Okay. So for in terms of, sorry, go on. Um, so, so, right. So I was just trying to set up what happened um, in the, in the 20 years since. Mm-hmm. Then, so what I got was a bunch of younger adventurers going like, well, how do I do this? How do I pay for these trips? And I'm not teaching them how to do it because it's, really difficult mm-hmm. and there's no one formula mm-hmm. what i am trying to do is i saw a space with a lot of inspiration in it mm-hmm. a lot of people setting themselves up uh going like let me provide you with inspirational content let me tell you to throw your fears to the wind and you know 25 dollars in your back pocket pocket and courage and you too can have adventures well yeah. you can adventures that cost $25 mm-hmm. and it also helps if you're white and middle class with a first world passport and if everything goes wrong your parents will bail you out wow. because they have a credit card uh, so I saw a lot of inspirational stuff that wasn't entirely practical mm-hmm. or sort of 
was based on a lot of unspoken privilege about being middle class and backed by your parents' credit card. Okay. Uh, the kind of, you know, very young, beautiful, white influencer who's mm -hmm. now dominating the adventure travel space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And not all of them, but some of them come into that space with considerable privilege, financial privilege, which they don't always talk about. Mm -hmm. I wanted to create something that was much more practical. Let's talk about money. When you have your big idea and your mother goes, that's nice, darling. How are you going to pay for it? Mm -hmm. I wanted to help people answer that question. I'm not saying the answer is easy. It isn't. But there are answers. People do make it work. There are about eight different ways in which adventurers can find funding, either before or after. Okay. You can either try and raise money beforehand for the project, or you can pay for the project yourself. There's a lot to be said for just earning your own money. Pay for it yourself and then monetize what you've achieved, assuming you achieved something interesting. So can you rattle off a few of those eight things that people can fundraise? So if you're looking um, beforehand, obviously people think of corporate sponsorship mm -hmm. uh, as the big one. But honestly, that's hard to raise. Okay. You either need the gift of the gab or you need to have done something good already mm -hmm. uh, to kind of open those doors for you. But so corporate sponsorship is one and people do still raise thousands and potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars in sponsorship. But that's many, many, many hours of your life. And you might have done better just to get a job as a bartender, mm -hmm. put those hours into earning actual money. Mm -hmm. spend that money on the trip and then monetize the trip afterwards. But anyway, upfront, corporate sponsorship, crowdfunding. Mm -hmm. uh, a little hard to crowdfund your own project. It sounds like you're asking people to pay for your holiday. Mm -hmm. But a few people have managed. And if you're crowdfunding a product, a film about the adventure, or something tangible that oh. your audience will get, course you actually have to make the product many a good crowdfunder has fallen down on delivering the product but nevertheless mm -hmm. crowdfunding uh, works in this space then smaller amounts of money adventure doesn't have to be the Everest hundred thousand commercial guided blah 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 mm -hmm. really interesting adventures can be done for a couple of thousand right. dollars pounds, okay. whatever um, so another one can be essentially brand ambassador. So those may not be money sponsorships from corporates. That's likely to be brands in the adventure space who will help you with product. They may help you with small amounts of money. It's not going to pay your rent back home, but it is possibly going to pay um, for, the, for, the, for the trip. Adventure grants. Mm -hmm. This is probably the big one for people just starting out. Mm -hmm. And... Australia is actually quite a good space for it. Okay. Not every country goes in for this, but New Zealand, Australia, Britain, and to some extent, the United States go in for adventure grants. And they may be clubs or organizations, uh, particularly in the climbing space. They're quite a lot of grants. Or they may be um, corporates looking for general media coverage an adventure grant is a fun way of getting social media coverage ah, and it's a good one uh there's actually there's one in australia for women in the adventure space that's been running 
in the last few months. And of course, I can't think of their name. That's okay. <laughs> um, but but so, yeah, so Google them. Australia's yeah, okay. you know, not bad for this. Yeah. And a lot of people are put off, say, in the adventure space because they want something that's like an unclimbed mountain. And mm -hmm. that sounds desperately difficult. But the truth is there are thousands of unclimbed mountains in the world. Mm. Um, in, north of India and in, in all the stand countries, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, mm -hmm. you just have to get onto Google Maps and start doing some planning. Mm. And yes, you may need some technical skills, mm -hmm. but there are also a lot of subsidized training courses for learning skills, mm -hmm. often for youth. Anyone who's under 30, under 25, under 21 needs to be jumping on these youth subsidized training skills, okay. Okay. Uh, looking for these things. Uh, so adventure grants can be a way into getting both the skills you need and then getting money um, to do the trip. I've got friends in the UK who fund entire expeditions to the Himalaya off the back of four or five grants, which gets them a couple of thousand pounds, which is enough. Mm -hmm. for a climbing trip so that gets you going that gets you onto the adventure then your next chance is when you come back now you've hopefully you've done something interesting obviously you need to have picked a good adventure and you need to have had some success and had some problems on the way <laughs> failing is okay but then if you failed you need to have failed in interesting dramatic ways <laughs> not to have given up big Hollywood <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, the, this happens for books, for films, for adventures. Yes. What you actually want is a set of dramatic obstacles, almost mm -hmm. failing, and then a last-minute unexpected success. Yes, yes, yes. You know, that's, that's, that's the formula for any adventure movie. Exactly, right. exactly. So, yeah, which is why a beautifully planned expedition doesn't always make a terribly good story when you got home again. Yeah, something went wrong. Become okay. obstacles, you yeah. know, in the in the storytelling sense. Mm. So you kind of need to think about how you're going to structure a story. If if nothing went wrong, what, what how can you? What are the obstacles you kind mm. of had to deal with? Mm. Yeah. Um, so coming home, obviously speeches, mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't have to be the corporate speaking space, which is hard to break into. Adventure festivals, schools. Mm -hmm. uh, small associations, you know, rotary clubs, yeah. all of those, a lot of them will pay a couple of hundred dollars. Yeah. Uh, obviously you need to ask because they'll take you for free. If you yeah. forget to ask for money Yes. yes. to ask. Um, but those are spaces where you can just put yourself forward because okay. they are always looking for new speakers. Mm -hmm. um, writing. Mm -hmm. Obviously you could be doing this on your own blog, building a following but uh, outdoor media, mm -hmm. selling articles about what you've done, uh, photography and film, again, uh, you need to have thought of all of this beforehand. You need to have a decent camera out there. You need to have photography skills. It's not enough to be happy snapping on your phone. <laughs> but you know, photo and film uh, from adventures can all be sold. Okay. Coming back to writing books, obviously uh, self-publishing is now a thing. Yeah. If your story is good enough yeah. and you can crowdfund the money to write the book of the adventure. Okay. But, uh, and the last one essentially is kind of social influence as in having a following. Mm -hmm. 
And it's not just that people with hundreds of thousands of followers can sell posts on their Instagram. Of course they can. Most of us don't have hundreds of thousands of followers and we're probably never going to have. We have like a thousand or five thousand if we're lucky. But those followers get you the other things. Those followers are the ones who support your crowdfunder. Mm -hmm. uh, those followers are the ones who get your brand ambassadorship mm -hmm. with outdoor brands on a bigger scale. Those followers are the ones who prove to corporate sponsors that your story resonates with people. Mm -hmm. Even having outdoor writing, yeah. you know, the magazine is hoping that your followers will read the article and therefore read the magazine. Yeah. Uh, when you're looking for media, even something like, frankly, what you and I are doing right now, mm -hmm. podcasting, in a sense, we are swapping followers. Mm -hmm. My followers hopefully will listen to your podcast and go, great content. I, I, let me look at her other episodes. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that your followers mm -hmm. will listen to me and go like, that's interesting. Let me check out her websites. Let me check out her, her social media feeds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So even if you don't think you've got enough followers to monetize, all the time you're doing these other things, you need to have your social media feeds up and running. And be trying to catch people into your Instagram or your Twitter or whatever it is you focused on. Mm -hmm. Because that audience, it turns out to be absolutely essential now. I 100% agree with that. And what I love most, Kathy, is number one, is you've not just shown us the fact that how you can fund an expedition and adventure, but also be able to monetize the back end once you return back home how to really optimize that and monetize it. So let me just ask you a few mindset questions before we wrap up, because you've given us the model. And for those who want to know more about how your adventures can be funded, please go check out Kathy's website. What, what's the website, Kathy? Uh, the website for the funding is thebusinessofadventure.com. Adventure.com, super. Now tell me something, and I want to ask you these quite fast because we don't have a lot of time left, but I, I definitely want to ask you these questions. When you were climbing Mount Everest, what kind of, in just some brief words, what kind of training is involved to prepare yourself mentally? Physically, of course, you've got to do the physical work, but mentally, are you doing anything to prepare yourself? Yes. Essentially, there are three kinds of training you need. Physical, which is the one everyone thinks about, being fit enough and being physically strong enough. Mm -hmm. um, but that's reasonably straightforward to organize. Then there's skill. A lot of people forget that you need to know how to use ice axe and crampons and the intangible skills. You need to read weather, be able to navigate, recognize an avalanche prone snow slope. Okay. Um, and then there's the one you're talking about, which is the kind of the mental preparation. Because honestly, most climbers fail mentally. They kind of give up on the whole thing. They get demoralized and overwhelmed and discouraged. Uh, disheartened and eventually they just lose their motivation and give up and go home. Yeah. And there is no way of knowing for certain that you've got what it takes mentally. And honestly, even if you've managed one expedition, the next one, yeah. some particular combination of circumstances may undermine you emotionally, mm -hmm. but you can prepare. And I think it's firstly about fully researching the space so you read every book, watch every film, source all the photographs, pour over the maps. So you try and understand the space as well as you can. Then you try and visualize yourself in the space. Mm -hmm. So it isn't a 
huge shock when you get there and discover, among other things, it's way less glamorous and much more work than you expected it to be. Mm. Uh, so visualize yourself in the space. Visualize yourself dealing with all the different problems you might encounter. Then I think it helps to have what we might call scenario planning, which is not just daydreaming about the success, waving the flag on the summit, but think about all the ways it might go wrong and what are you going to do? Because when it goes wrong, you're going to be super stressed and very tired and not, not at your most creative in terms of lateral thinking and creative problem solving. Mm -hmm. It helps if you've imagined beforehand, if this went wrong, here are three things I might do. Those three things each would have these consequences. This is how I deal with it. So that when it happens, you almost already have solutions in mind. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I, I've thought about this already. My choices are A, B, C. Um, let's think about whether A would work right now or B or C. So and a lot of people in our space, you know, being all motivational, it's all about success and, you know, the winners never quit and, you know, believe you can do it. You know, if you dream it, you can do it. Oh, it's such crap. Mm. There's a huge chance we're going to fail, all of us, whether we're on a mountain or whether we're trying to run our own businesses. Yeah, yeah. Most of us are going to fail at these yeah. things. And that's okay. You can learn a huge amount by failing. It's worth trying because you'll have learned something. But it's also worth failing in ways that don't leave you in huge debt or dead on a mountainside or, you know, utterly emotionally devastated by failure. You can fail in ways that are minimal damage, extricate yourself from the situation, learn your lessons, move on. How, how so mental preparation you... includes being, thinking about how are you going to extricate yourself if it goes wrong. How do you then translate that to real life? So once you've come back and you prepare yourself mentally to go there, how does that translate into your now everyday life of being back at home? How do you prepare yourself for the challenges that come? So for example, let me just give you an analogy. If I go for a run and if I'm supposed to go for, I don't know, for whatever amount of Ks or meters, uh, <laughs> to be honest. But if I say, oh, look, the, my, my front door is just there. Instead of running to it, I'm tired. I'll just walk to it. And that just shows a bit of how I'm dropping the ball and letting myself off the hook. So my running translate, where else am I doing that in my personal life? Am I dropping the ball and just taking it easy? Does that kind of thing happen when you're climbing a mountain and preparing for it? Yes. I mean, it translates at a set of levels. It translates at the don't give up too easily level. Mm -hmm. And one of the things is this is hard work, all of it. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't get success easily. It takes longer than you hoped. It takes more work than you wanted. Mm -hmm. And there's a discipline to it. I think sometimes we chase things too quickly. You almost, you run too fast, get exhausted and give up. Whereas what we ought to be doing is sort of slow, steady runs today, tomorrow, next week, next year. And then we're ready for the marathon or the, or the ultra marathon. So I think with a lot of this, slow it down, do it regularly with discipline and think about not where you're going to be next week, but where you're going to be next year in terms of the work you're, you're putting into this. So yes, it's about not giving up too easily, but it's also about being intelligent. If, if you're running on an injury, don't mm. rest the injury. Um, if you absolutely hate running, don't run because everyone else tells you to run, pick another sport, mm. climbing, go get on a bike, you know, find, do the exercise, but find it in a way that, that works for you. So it's about approaching the project intelligently, what you actually want potentially presumably maybe it's to run a marathon or maybe it's just the exercise and the fitness. 
and you could do that another way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do think it's worth finding your space. Back off from things that if you truly hate them, mm-hmm. find an equivalent. Think about what you're actually trying to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, work your way towards that. Any one project, it's okay to bail on it if it turns out it's not right. But what you don't want to do is just give up because, oh God, it's hard work. And mm-hmm. hard work. Well, I love what you said. You said it's going to take longer than you think and it's going to be more harder work than you expected. I think that's gold. <laughs> that's the reality and that's gold. Absolutely. That's the reality. But it's that thing about, you know, the, the planting of your tree, the best time to plant that tree was 10 years ago mm-hmm. because now you'd have a 10-year-old tree. Mm-hmm. But the next best time to plant that tree is right now mm-hmm. because 10 years from now, you'll have something. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you don't do it today or tomorrow or next week, 10 years from now, you'll have what you've got now, which is nothing. Exactly. Uh, we, there's that quote I love, we overestimate what we can do in a year mm-hmm. and then get disappointed when we don't seem to have achieved a great deal. We underestimate what we can do in 10 years. Mm. If you start today, 10 years from now, you'll be somewhere quite different and potentially really interesting. And on that note, Kathy, I want to thank you sincerely. I could go on for a lot longer to talk to you. I really could. We're just running out of time. And I just want to say thank you so much for sharing the story behind Everest, the little intricacies and how you can now help people to fund their adventures and then monetize the back end of that. I think that's fantastic. So thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. And if people want to join my ongoing adventure, Twitter and Instagram, at Kathy O'Dowd. I love that. Good on you. Good on you for that. All right. Thanks, guys. And we'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.